Welcome to the Stargate Archives, buried deep within Cheyenne Mountain. Good evening, good afternoon, welcome everybody to this episode of the Stargate Archives, formerly the Gatecast podcast. We have a new guest this evening. You will recognise him from many episodes of the Gatecast. Welcome back, Jeff. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Enjoying the nice mild weather for summer right now. Oh yeah, it's cooled down a bit. I'm more happy now. Actually, I had to wear socks the other day. It was weird. So I had a look back through the history. It seems the last time you were with us was for the Stargate Universe premiere. Yeah, I think that's about right, yeah. I wanted to get back to do some other Universe ones, but my schedule never worked out. That's the beauty of working in education, I suppose. You will get summers off occasionally. Yeah, and I'm sure that's when all my parents' the last few years have been is during school holidays of one kind or another. Again, one of the drawbacks when you're talking to people from this side of the planet you can't always guarantee that you'll be both available in the evening. Right. Right then, we are going to be discussing the uh, Stargate SG-1 Season 1 episode, The First Commandment, written by Dennis Berry, who wrote two episodes of Stargate, and directed by... No, that's the wrong way around. That is, Michael. That's the wrong way around. Written by Robert C. Cooper. <laughs> Became a very familiar name in the Stargate franchise. And directed by Dennis Berry, who directed two episodes of Stargate SG-1. That makes a lot more sense. <laughs> yes, they're done. <laughs> I knew Robert Cooper directed a few episodes, but not this early on. What happens when you write notes down and actually watch what you're doing? At this point, there isn't trivia about this episode on IMDb. It seemed a good episode for trivia. To... There's a few notes and goofs on uh, Stargate Wiki. Okay. And I see that Richard Dean Anderson is going for a rather old picture of himself on IMDb these days. You can't... <laughs> Not a current picture, it's definitely from the 80s or 90s. A more recent picture of him being old. No. Although sometimes I'm pretty sure the actual actor or actress involved don't actually update their own IMDb profile. It's, it's usually pretty easy reading the bios. This is a profile that's being maintained by a fan, by the person, or by their agency. Right then, shall we jump right in? Sure. Right, the episode opens up with a very dark forest on the planet Avnil. We've got a couple of soldiers being chased by some dark figures. They're wearing SG uniforms, or what's left of them anyway. A couple of darts flash through, catch one of the guys. Freight, he falls down. Some sort of sedative, or maybe he's in deadly poison, we're not quite sure. The music is very uh, pounding, get you going straight away. Do you recognise one of the actors? I kept on thinking I did, but I couldn't place any of the actors in this one. The only one who I really recognised was the big baddie, you know, the head of the other team. But some of the other some of the other guys looked familiar, but I couldn't place them except for the guy we meet on later on in the episode. Well, Lieutenant Connor in his Roger Cross, Dark Matter. Yeah, I haven't watched that yet. <laughs> okay. At all. Well, you'll have plenty <laughs> to catch you up on. According to his IMDb, here is one of the secret agents or special agents in the White House during one of the X Men movies. He's also in Twenty Four, Arrow. Oh, here we go, Arrow. That's where I recognize him from. Continuum, of course. He starred in that. Yeah, okay. I didn't dig any deeper, which I should have. Freaks is down. He shouts to his companion, Connor, run, go, reach the Stargate. At this point, you think an SG team is under attack. We get some natives of the planet, judging by their appearance. 
And then another SG member walked up. Doesn't look good. No, this was a good twist early on in the series. I think this is also the first episode where we really saw that there are other teams. Been mentioned, but we haven't really, apart from SG2, of course, which, well, they didn't hear very well. (laughs) Right. I mean, this is the first time it's looking like we see an example of the other teams are being modeled off of SG1's composition as far as even including an anthropologist on the team which must be galling to Jack to know that Daniel's being used as a model for other teams. There's a Lieutenant Baker and Captain Hansen. Jonas Hansen is played by William Russ. Pulls out a 9mm and shoots the man dead. Yeah. What do we do with him? Burn him. You think, good God, what the hell's going on here? Burn him pretty quickly, like they threw magnesium or something on him. Just Serious moonshine the natives brew. Yeah, because that wasn't just a normal fire. That was, we could forge off that fire almost, the way it went up so quickly. We see the remains later on in the episode, and they, they've been vaporized. Yeah, and it was cool seeing him show up, the captain, because he's been an actor in so many other shows. They really did very well early on in the first season of SG-1, getting some familiar actors. Of course, they've got the Vancouver acting pool to draw upon. There is some talent out there. How much of this, especially in the first season, for earlier seasons, was them pulling off of the Vancouver talent pool or them creating the Vancouver talent pool? Because it seems like a lot of these actors that we see now in Continuum and other things on Sci-Fi Channel or even other things on other channels now, their first appearances were back with Stargate. Certainly early on. Because it's for whatever reason it seems that Stargate's the first show that I really ever realized was primarily made in Vancouver. And it was like Smallville came up later. And As we've seen with the other episodes that Gatecast went on to do, there is a whole lot of overlap between all of our genre shows and the actors in Stargate. Right, we jump to daylight, the same forest. SG-1 are around. They're discussing the high ultraviolet radiation of the planet, which makes you wonder how this sort of thriving ecosystem could survive or actually evolve. (laughs) The plants just must have evolved to deal with the UV or whatever. I don't think they did enough in the production to make it look different enough. They could have really messed around with the filters to really make it look different. like any other force. I think they kept off for that because of the orange thing they needed to do later on. Maybe, yeah. You're going to be using a big filter at some point, so we got to stay with Yeah, they mentioned that there's no birds. Makes sense, really. Yeah. They're looking for SG-9 to confirmation that it was the SG team. Dr. Carter, Tilk is still very formal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tilk was very rigid this episode still. It was kind of wild watching such an old episode. Since the last ones I'd watched were much farther along, he'd loosened up and watched Star Wars a couple dozen times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so, yeah. Uh, they're walking through, and then... A very well-camouflaged Lieutenant Connor. So we thought he'd, he'd gone through the Stargate, but no, that was just a diversion. Send a message, or at least make the SGC aware that something was wrong, but stay local. I remember back first seeing the show, it wasn't what I was expecting. Because every other time when the gate opens at that point, someone went through the gate. No one just yeah. opened a gate and leave it open. But obviously, Stargate commanded nowhere, you know, the wormholes coming from. No radio contact, nobody coming through. It makes you wonder, surely they were out of contact with them for a long time. Or were they reg- doing regular check-ins, faking information or something like that? That was something I was wondering while watching the episode this time, was what was the timeline for how long that SG team had been there to take over the way they had, and why hadn't the SGC been more like, hey guys, what, what's going on? They're reporting no serious problems, then well, we'll send a few extra people around. No, no, that's all right, that's all right. 
Yeah, because, I mean, some of that's also with the way the show is. SG-1 was always very much, hey, we're here, we're going to stay for a day, then we go away. But for this team, it seems like they're staying there for two or three weeks, at least. We learn that Captain Hansen is Carter's fiance after Jack actually orders her to return to Stargate Command with Connor. Nobody seems to be listening to Jack at this point, <laughs> in, in, even to the point where it says, does it say Colonel anywhere on my uniform? <laughs> yeah, I think in a lot of ways, this episode was helping set the tone for the rest of the season, or the rest of the show, really. The plight, we're not going to listen to your orders, and some of the snarkiness that Jack keeps on showing really was coming up a lot in this episode in its own way, even for the serious nature of it. I think during his Black Op days, any unit he was operating with would all be focused on the same objective. There wouldn't be any dissent, no matter what rank you were. Here, he's working with people of totally different fields within the military. Yeah. <laughs> we get a Wizard of Oz reference. Basically, we're off to see the wizard. Hey-ho. <laughs> we get a quick jump to some sort of cave, or at least some canvas covering to a cave. Call it an awning, if you will. Oh, I didn't write stuff down. It's it's summer. I don't have to write. I can understand that. <laughs> the other SG team now? We have Hansen. They figured out it must have been SG-1 showing up, or they assumed it was going to be SG-1 showing up to check on him. We get a quick view of the inside of one of the caves with one of the two members of SG-9, Hansen, Baker as well. We're seeing that he seems to be sitting on a throne surrounded by young women. Something is seriously going on. He looks at his dog tags. This is where he rips them off, so... That's when we jump back to the forest where SG-1 are sitting around a campfire. Yeah, setting up all their, their gizmos and tracking stuff. Went back to IMDb here looking at the list of episodes. This is only the fifth episode of the first season. Those caves then would have been establishing in first time we had those caves in SG-1 because I'm sure those caves were the same caves we used all throughout the life of the show. Or at least they realised what worked and what didn't. Right. <laughs> Great looking cave, but we can't actually get the camera inside. Daniel's eating some rations. Tastes like chicken. What's the problem? It's macaroni and cheese. <laughs> they have a discussion about natives actually considering people walking through the Stargate as gods. Again, Connor explains that the you know the social structure of this settlement, they thought it would be dangerous to actually disrupt them. That's a valid point, really. Would it be easier to actually play along and look to sometime in the future, you know, break down the barriers and explain what they were or go right, you know, rip the band-aid off straight away. Someone who studied anthropology in college, it's a valid question, but I would think ethics would always lead you to go, have to say, no, not really. Because I don't believe any anthropologist studying first contact with the rare tribe that we still haven't made contact with in the Amazon or somewhere tries to play off as some god from the skies. That was always kind of left me as like one of the times where the anthropology side of the show didn't really line up the way it should have been. We don't really know the character of that anthropologist. Maybe he was, you know, overwhelmed by Hansen. Yeah. We know Daniel. He's very strong-minded through everything he's been through, you know, his years on the fringe of his profession, and he's got a bit of a backbone. He wouldn't be pushed around. Uh, living in Abydos with the people. Yeah, Connor explains that Hansen actually went out into the wilderness and rescued a missing child and, you know, cemented his godhood. It also left a question as to how much of what Hansen did later on then, you know, what he then started doing was a result of he was always kind of like that, which Sam kept on kind of backing up that he was a bit of a control freak. But how much of it was maybe his brains just got a little too fried? I would imagine it's a bit of both. The very fact that 
Sam feels it's necessary to actually say, you know, he was troubled. He was, you know, a very forceful character. He liked getting his own way. I really don't understand how, although we don't know what Sam was like when he was younger. Considering all she's done in the military, she had time for this level of a relationship. This would have been a relationship before she joined the SGC, so it would have been while she was primarily a scientist in the military, Definitely, not necessarily one doing a lot of active stuff. Well, you'd assume he was on active duty and she was still, you know, working through her various PhDs as well. She she flew jets. Yeah. So, come on. Yeah, I can't imagine Jonah, her father, being all that hip on this guy, though. Jacob. Jacob, there we go. There was a J name. They weren't exactly a happy family. Oh, that's, that's right. I forgot about that. And they were only the last episode in Cold Lazarus that she revealed that she had a brother. Doesn't have much contact with yeah. him either. Yeah, Cold Lazarus is my least favorite episode of the entire show. Yes, you made that clear. That's why Brad joined me for that. <laughs> it's it, it, Even when I would introduce new people to the show, we'd start watching season one and I, we can skip episode six. We, <laughs> it really doesn't add to the show at all. Jack's out about his son. That, that's all you need to know about the episode. Yeah. Good at seven. Right, we jump back to see a rather large quarry, or at least a pit that's been doubling up as a, a quarry. <laughs> Lots of natives hacking away at the sides of it, mining. Erecting what looks to be a copy of Notre Dame Cathedral, which always seemed out of place for the natives to be building. I cannot see these people having the construction skills to build anything that would be worthy of the god Hansen. Right. It really had the look of a cathedral from our planet, and wouldn't have the technology and I don't see anyone on the SG team having the architectural knowledge to be able to design much more than a big box. Yeah, single level, stone walls, thatched roof, maybe a, a chiseled altar, that's about it. Right. Seemed way too grandiose for anyone's capabilities. I suppose that could argue the fact that Hansen is, is a bit delusional. He's actually seeing a vision that is never going to work. He's got that picture in his mind and <laughs> no matter what, it's never going to come to fruition. I can see that, yeah. Back to the SG camp, night time, they get attacked, quite a big firefight, darts are flying around everywhere, Tilt manages to fire his staff weapon, a huge explosion against a tree, everybody scatters, and Connor's, Connor's been kidnapped. <laughs> it made no sense to me though, if you're going to attack the group, you know it's SG-1, you know, if they're there, the SG's already getting nosy and going to start looking around, either kill everyone or leave them alone and try to scare them away. Yeah. Taking just that one guy, you know, revenge, great. And I think they even made reference to it being just teaching him a lesson. Yeah, all about control. I, I can get any of you. So I've got my man. Yeah. Back. Walking through the woods, Tilk has actually lost his helmet. <laughs> <laughs> they come across the mine, the quarry. Quick look and we see Connor staked out. The UV rays soaking into his skin. Bit dangerous to be working during the daylight. But obviously Hansen isn't too worried about the health of his uh, people. Yes, they must make sacrifices to their god, prove they're worthy. Yes, pretty much justify everything with that mindset. Yeah, a couple of natives staked out down there, so it was clear that everyone was 100% behind Hansen. But with the natives knowing full well how dangerous the sunlight was, I don't see them being as readily ready to, to go along with that. Yeah, we see an overseer putting the boot into one of the natives. Sam's all up for going to the rescue, exactly what she hopes to do, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Jack, you do this, you do that, never mind. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Jack's got the right idea, he's got the, you know, the covert infiltration skills to do this job. And the rest of his team just blows it all up in his face. Yeah, pretty much so. <laughs> we jump back to the cave, Jonas is aware that SG-1 are 
on site. He says it's about time, so he's been expecting somebody to come at some point. We learned that he was expecting SG-1, mainly because of his uh, relationship with Samantha. Yeah, I got the impression that it was SG-1 just because they're the, the lead team that was being sent out. General wouldn't have cared at all about Sam and the other guy. I would have thought they, w- they would have got assigned specifically. They could have been on another mission. Whatever team's available goes. For them to have been sent out meant Hammond was just going with the lead team, not you know picking that team because of who's on the team. I can trust them to do the job. They go. Oh, in that case, it, it worked out well for Jonas then. Yeah. <laughs> also, Jonas thinking too much of himself. Oh, definitely. You know, that they're, they're going to tailor the people they send because it's me. So they're going to send Sam because it's me. I doubt him cares that Sam and him ever went out. No, probably not. I say Jack's gone to rescue Connor. Sam just can't let things go. Somehow they, they do manage to get well into this quarry without anybody saying, who the hell's that? It's quite amazing. She actually manages to get to the member of the SG-9, actually deck him a few times. Fortunately, she's captured. <laughs> Jack isn't very happy at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he's, he's gone in. He, he's got the lay of the land. He's got back out without anybody noticing him. Now he's got to go back in again. It was cool seeing Sam show that she's able to throw down with the rest of the guys. The other thing that just popped into my head was you really only see that one member of the other SG team. It's Captain and his one lieutenant. That's all that's left. Yeah. The guy made try to escape. Yeah, we, we assume that there were four members. We've, we've seen one be murdered. I assume Freaks was the uh, anthropologist. Yeah, four would be about right. Yeah. Or maybe a fifth with the anthropologist that we just never saw him die on screen. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. You're right. That is about the right size for the team. They spot one of the natives leaving the quarry. Follow him to the river. Yes, fortunate that. The lad gets a bit of a fright. Well, who wouldn't when Dilk's standing right behind you? <laughs> yeah. Well, at first, it, I think it's Daniel. In, Daniel goes to get a drink. Oh, hi. The lad turns around. There's Jack standing. Well, Jack's on one side. Then he turns around. Then it's Dilk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, he was having a quiet drink, and now he's surrounded by some strangers. Like, oh, I got caught, and they look like the dad. He's Jamala, played by Jaff Peru. And this was literally his first screen credit, was SG-1. Oh, right. He was the one I thought really looked familiar to me, and he's just been in a whole lot of random stuff. He was like always one episode or two episodes of different shows, Dark Angel, Andromeda, L.A. Law, all sorts. Of, oh, he was even in the Scooby-Doo movie. <laughs> he also kind of typifies the friendly native that SG-1 always finds everywhere they go. Yeah, convenient. He also didn't fit with, and they didn't have time to really go into it with this culture that they find on this planet. But the warriors looking kind of New Guinea, Southeast Asia, Polynesian islands with the big mud helmets and everything. Yeah. He looks more Middle Eastern with the robes that he's wearing. So it almost like two different cultures that are going on. Which isn't really a bad thing. Sometimes you think they, they spend too much time making sure you know exactly what culture this civilization is based on. Through architecture and dress and uh, mannerisms. One of the things that drew me into the show was, you know, see different cultures every week. Getting to go, oh yeah, I remember reading something about that in this class or that class, whatever. I always enjoyed that part. And I still like this episode because the Big Mud Helmets, that's, I think, the only time we saw anything close to that, the Papua New Guinea cultures. It makes me wonder if this settlement was never permanent. These people were shipped in by, you know, the system lord and worked here maybe till their death. This is a very primitive culture. I wonder if these are just the remnants of what's left after whatever system lord just said he'd had enough and walked away. It was just the whatever they're mining, I'm guessing Naquita, but I don't think they'd come up with that yet. 
once they're done mining, the, the system lord just left them there. We see further on that there are definite settlements, definite civilizations that have been directly seeded from Earth. They've developed as is, whereas this looks more like some sort of work camp where they send the troublemakers. So that's why you get kind of a mixture of cultures. I didn't think about this. It's a fair point. Never looked like the settlement that we see in other episodes, that maybe this was just a, we're going to throw some people down here and mine this stuff. If something happens, it happens. Otherwise, hey, we got our ore and then we're done. Can't imagine the system lord having a permanent shield for the benefit of his workers' families. <laughs> no. They're not really that way inclined. No, nah, it's just there so that the work lasts long enough to finish the work. Yep. Back in the cave, Jonas is having a discussion with Sam. She's looking at the cave art. She actually asks him, you know, what does it all mean? And he says, I've never asked anybody because I'm the god. I'm all-knowing. I can't actually show there's something I don't know. He's right. You can't show uh, ignorance of any of their history or anything like that. You'd think that would trip him up at some point, though. They're probably too scared to ask at this point. Not that they would ask him, but just that he would end up saying or proclaiming something that was in direct contradiction to, you know, a, a tale that all of them knew. Yeah. Well, she grabs his gun, points it at his head, and here is a very graphic demonstration of power and control. And why Jack was trying to send Sam back to the gate. Yes. This would have been all over. She knows he murdered a member of the SGC, or at least maybe two, who knows. She could have winged him. She could have done anything. But no, he's just calm. He knows her. He knows what needs to be said, what buttons to push. Yeah. And he gets a gun off her. Oh, well, never mind. Mm. The next bit where he shows her, or is this the next scene where he shows her the shield device? Uh, that's a bit later on. We get back to the native and they're at the river. We get a little funny with Jaffa and smiling. <laughs> you need to work on that. <laughs> he does a bit. Takes him a season or two to finally figure out how to smell friendly yeah. like. And this is where we get the first mention of the orange sky. Our god has promised to fix the sky, make it orange again. Very interesting, you know. You know anything about this tilk? Could be, could be. Yes, tilks the explanation generator. Yeah. Not one to offer advice, but if you ask him a specific question, you'll probably have the answer. Yeah. Although from the sound of it, the shield device that they had wasn't something that was common part of the equipment loadout. No. Very specific use. Yeah. You wouldn't look to populate a planet that was detrimental to humanoid life unless it had something you really, really wanted. Of course, they didn't go into it on the episode, but it doesn't sound like the shield device covered the whole planet. It was only going to cover like 20 or 30 square miles worth of territory. Yeah, very restricted. But we get to see Tilt, his artistic skills. The native is seriously impressed. Good drawing. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Tilt's probably never had reason to draw anything in his life. So, you know, mountains, sky, the sun. Yeah, job done. And it also kind of presages how Tilt is going to be later on in the show that he does actually kind of relax. And just one of the guys. Oh, yeah. There's definitely, there's definitely humor there. It's just going to take a while to actually bring it to the surface. But when it does, there's no stopping him. Yeah, but it was also such a very, very sincere-sounding compliment from the native. Oh, yeah. We've seen the cave drawings. They're <laughs> probably done by very, you know, specific people. You know, somebody just can't walk up and start drawing on a cave wall. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, they're probably revered by most of the, the natives. So to actually see somebody drawing on paper, blimey, that's miraculous. Not even surprised by paper or the pen either. <laughs> This is where we jump back to the cave and Jonas is explaining the Gawold device that he's found. 
And I like the, the announcement that, oh, it looks to be, the insides look similar to a Stargate. As Sam starts digging around inside of it. New toy to play with. I had figured stuff in between, between the movie and, and now, as far as the Stargate timeline. But it still seems really early for Sam to be all that much of an expert on a DHD and how they work. You're probably right. They haven't had too many opportunities to take one apart. But again, we're not quite sure how much work she did prior to joining SG-1. You know, she said the world's foremost expert on this sort of wormhole, astrophysics. So I suppose we've got to let it pass. We have to. But also then brings to question the, which this episode settles somewhat, but how much the other teams are doing that we're not seeing. How much technology those other SG teams are bringing back. There was one of them sent out and they actually found a spare DHD sitting somewhere that they could bring it back so that they could tear it apart. Mm, would a Stargate work? We know the Earthgate does, of course, but that's got a computer backing it up. But a broken DHD... Well, no, maybe they teleported into some old gold base where there was an actual spare DHD sitting oh, in a, right. a locker somewhere. <laughs> they wouldn't tear down one that was sitting there working because, hey, that's our only way home <laughs> over hundreds of light years. <laughs> maybe they found a broken one next to a working one that had been installed to fix the broken one. Somehow... They would have had to do that somewhere, somehow, in order for Sam and everyone else to learn enough about how they're programmed inside to fix them as we go on in the show. I think it's important to note that we don't see the insides. So the, the crystal technology of, you know, being derived from the ancients, that has still yet to be revealed. So start tinkering around all of the mystery tools. Whether that was a conscious decision on their part or just a lucky thing that they did, it worked out because, yeah, we don't. Yeah, I don't think it's till the end of that this season that we see the crystal technology for the first time. Right, we jump back to Tilk having discussion with uh, Jamala. He pretty much uh, just lays it out. Having power does not equal being a god. Just because you, you can do A doesn't mean you're B. Kind of one of the rare instances where the friendly native latches on to Tilk over Daniel or Jack. Yes, he does, doesn't he? Yeah. So he, he's very much Tilt's friend. He's not hanging out with Daniel. He's not hanging out with Jack. He's all about the Jaffa there. And this is where we learn that the system needs two devices. Obviously, the, the drawing, they've got a map. <laughs> <laughs> Such a wonderful map. <laughs> they did actually find the other device rather quickly, I thought. It helped that there was there under a nice, you know, gold cement block. Yeah, and he's easily broken apart by staff weapons fire. Yeah. That didn't damage the device underneath at all. No, well, Teal fired it from such a nice oblique angle that it was just enough to tap it and blow off the lid and, you know, open it up for him. Yes, of course. Jafar's staff training is to how to open up sealed grips without damaging the inside. You, you actually could <laughs> be right. <laughs> Although their proficiency with aiming those weapons, it's, you never know, really. Right. <laughs> Joking aside about, you know, part of the staff training, it had very much the look of saw this lab and knew exactly what was going to be under this lab. Yeah, so he's going to be set up under this probably lab. seen something similar before. Yeah, even though at this point they're still creating the whole Jaffa mythology and culture for the show. <laughs> right, so Jack decides to make her another run at the camp. He's got some nice robes. He looks very much like a Jedi. <laughs> he's got a dark gun. He actually infiltrates the camp again very, very easily. He gets right up to Connor. Connor's mighty surprised to see him. <laughs> Connor's tied up with more rope than you can shake a stick at. Yeah, where do they where are they getting the vines and stuff to make that rope out of? Yeah. But that's another question. I wouldn't like to carry that much rope with me. No. There's some weight there. Uh, he successfully unties him. They start walking out of the camp. Unfortunately, they get they get intercepted. First by one of the natives, then by Baker. I want to tell you a story. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we knew as soon as Jack started spring Hunter that 
they're going to get caught on the way out. There's no way they're going to rescue him and get out of the the valley without being caught. No, because if Connor's been staked out by orders of the god, any of the natives are going to going to say something. Right. You know, your god is vengeful. If you don't say anything, there will be consequences. Two guys stake next to Connor are going to say something. Yeah, uh, dude, yeah. What about me? What about me? <laughs> I was surprised that Baker didn't seem to recognise Jack. Yeah. You would have thought the lead member of SG-1 would be known to every member of the SGC. He was kind of a weird guy because his role in the, the episode was as the flunky thug. But he's really one of the only SG people we ever see that is a flunky thug. Because even the other SG people in later episodes who you know kind of go bad or whatever, they're not just kind of a thug guy like this guy is. Yeah, they can argue their position on why they've chosen a certain path. Yeah, exactly. Baker looks like he's just thrown his lot in with the you know with his commander and he's enjoying being a bully i'm not the quarterback anymore so i guess i gotta do this it seems odd but then again that might reinforce the idea that long-term exposure to this radiation does affect earth humans possible and you've got to wonder how much i mean we know the sg teams come through with a whole lot of equipment they don't always necessarily need on any given mission but just how much the sun oil, SPF, I'm forgetting words now. Sunscreen. <laughs> sunscreen, thank you. <laughs> how much sunscreen that team was packing and when it's going to run out. Yeah, immediately you think the mal, you know, recognize the high UV radiation, adjust their kits accordingly, new supplies come through. Right. If they're out of contact with the SGC or purposely staying out of contact, they're not going to be getting their resupplies. Well, they made the point, the makeup department, to actually make their complexions blistered and burnt. Yeah. They're not healthy, that's definitely. You know, Matal, maybe they've been there for a month, it's taken its toll on them. They did do a good job of showing the, the captain, he looked a lot rougher than his lumpy looked. When we went out to rescue the child. Yeah. Jack is brought before Jonas, does his leverage for Sam, turn it on or else. She turns it on, nice orange light. Well, hey, I'm in business, I can kill everybody I don't need now, no worries. He's not thinking quite straight, you know. And Jack keeps his mouth shut. Oh, well, there's a second one you need, Phil. <laughs> yeah, Jack's confident he's got the ace in the hole. So the w- <laughs> we all get taken to the Stargate, and they've laid it on its side. I think this is the first time we've seen that on the show, isn't it? Seen it working, yes. That someone on a planet has taken it other than Abydos. Earth and laid it. Oh, was it on its side in Abydos, though? Yeah, they buried it, didn't they? I assume they didn't bury well, it vertically. Yeah, but I mean, that someone's reorienting the Stargate and then still using it. Because we do see that in later on episodes. Yeah, that's what I mean. We've seen it working on its side. Yeah. Yeah. Which is quite clever. I mean, he's built a nice little, you know, stone platform and everything. It's actually very, very nice set design. I really liked it. And it, to me, it opened up when I watched the show originally. It was like, oh, okay, the, the Stargate's a whole lot more modular than it looks, if you can do that without yeah. a lot of technology. I always thought that it needed the plinth it was designed for. Right. Like that played a part in gathering the energy the system uses, be it from geothermal, uh, lightning strikes, or anything like that. Because, you know, the power source for the gate has always been a bit of a mystery. And this kind of keeps it a mystery that, you know, maybe it's solar or Wi Fi from the DHD yeah, or whatever it is. It could be pulling energy directly from the magnetic field of the planet. This is fantastic. You know, some say, no, you promised you weren't going to kill them. And he says, well, I'm not going to kill them, I'm sending them home. Wonderful villain yes. rationalization. I really enjoyed it. If they hit the Irish and go splat, that's not my problem. I sent them home. I let them go home. Yes. I can only control what's on my side of the Stargate, not what's on the other side of the Stargate. Yes, and it's, it's looking bad. Will our hero survive? Tune in next week. 
<laughs> Jonas have his big speech, only I can control the power. You know, he activates a DHD. The wormhole uh, created, again, looks, looks very, very nice. Connor and Jack are pushed towards the edge of the plimp. At this point, I think, does, does Daniel leap in to save the day? Uh, yeah, I think so. And Sam, hands bound, does a ridiculously high kick, then gets splat <laughs> for her efforts. <laughs> Sam clearly did some dance work at some point. Yes, that was, that was a spectacularly <laughs> high kick. Never knew she was in the Rockettes in, in the early years. <laughs> then was it Daniel makes his speech. The friendly native fires the staff so that Dilk knows to turn on the other device. Yeah, Jonas turns on the device. The orange, you know, is emitted into the sky and it just kind of dies to death. Why doesn't it work? That's when, you know, Daniel, there, I can make it work, no problem, you know. He's backed up by Jamala. He's using a weapon of the gods, obviously underlining the fact that it's not that special. I mean, Jamala was clear that he'd never seen a Jaffa before and just been told stories. But it also still made me wonder how long ago it really was, how many generations back they had been left on their own. Yeah. Kind of felt like maybe it had only been two or three generations. There might have been a cave painting we didn't see. Right. Either way, you know, that weapon is still beyond anything they've seen. You know, one one shot of that when they attacked the camp the other night got them all running. Yeah, it's definitely way above any of the guns their god is using. Yeah. <laughs> so Jamala fires into the sky, Tilk sees the energy, energy pulse, activates the second device, the shield... Two shots of orange light beam out, hit each other and expand across the valley. I'm not quite sure how that works, but okay. It reflects off the ionosphere and does something. Yeah, that's how it works. Of course it does. Tachyons are involved somewhere as well. (laughs) At this point, Hansen is pretty much revealed as the false god. Kind of a quick turnaround on his followers, though, there. I've got the feeling that, you know, probably was some discontent. That's what I was thinking as well. They revered him as a god, but as a bad god, an evil god. First opportunity, get him, lads. He can't kill us all. I was feeling about it too, because just the orange thing being turned on really wasn't enough for them to turn on him so quickly and so violently. You know, they're working during the daylight hours and everything else is kind of building up, and they're all without talking, but I kind of all waiting for the moment where we're like, yeah, screw this guy. We don't like him anymore. It could be just two or three generations. We don't go out during the day. You know, we hunt at night, we stay in the caves, we live, we survive. And like Jonas says, he was that desperate to get this temple built, he working his people during the day. And that went totally against the culture, the beliefs, the safety, people were dying. No doubt, uh, as we saw other people staked out, people did either run off or oppose him and were punished for it. He may have been living life as a god, as a king. He didn't really know how to manipulate people subtly right and people being beaten for not working hard enough and others by that point where everyone knew someone who had been unrightfully punished for you know for not doing enough work when they knew that you know old joe that that's the best he could ever do so why was he being beat for yeah. doing the best he could do that's it you know he, he probably murdered the uh, the only cave painter they had all <laughs> <laughs> the young women of the camp you know lived in his cave that'd give people grumpy like no women left probably yeah uh, <laughs> Right, one thing I, I thought, living under this shield can't be good for you either. This is one of those cultures where you kind of hope someone came back in a few months and just kind of said, hey, we got a we got a nicer planet over here for you. Why don't you, why don't you leave this place? It's kind of a dump. Yeah, nice trees, nice water. You can go out during the daylight. This, yeah, this is clearly not a civilization that's going to last or you know, make it in the long run on this planet. They need to move somewhere else or need to be given a lot of help. 
and we never really find out just how much of that sort of thing the SGC really does in the background. We know they do some of it. We even learned some of that with the broke eyed. Yeah. This certainly looks something they could help without being too expensive. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to even have to be a perfect planet. It's certainly better than this. planet where you can go out during the day and hunt. If that shield fails, you assume it's not designed to be running 24-7. I always had the impression that the shield, once it was turned on, was probably going to last for the next two or three hundred years, because the ancients in the gold, when they built stuff, they built it to just keep running. And either they're technologies that seem to run out or wear down within a, a normal lifespan at all. Yeah, probably. But again, you wonder how much wildlife there is in this area of uh, the forest as well. Can't be a whole lot. No. The cave paintings show some sort of antelope, but if there's no birds in the woodland, that probably indicates that the local wildlife has been decimated through the lack of a shield. Yeah, I always took the lack of birds as just birds are too small to to deal with the, the UV. Maybe. That was just a branch of the animal spectrum that couldn't handle that planet at all. You're probably looking at a lot of nocturnal life then. Yeah, that's what I expected, and they didn't really show that at all, which I was always a little disappointed by. Yeah. SG-9, well, Connor's all right, so <laughs> the, only, the only survivor of SG-9. Jamala, he looks like he could be the next uh, leader of this uh, settlement. Yeah. He deserves it. <laughs> He's going to be the new Skyra. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Everybody bids a, a farewell, handshaking all around. Tilk has actually found his helmet again. <laughs> they dial the gate, and off they go. Tracking shot into the sky. End of episode. And it was a Walter Free episode, too. Oh, yeah. Surprisingly, he's been very busy in the previous episodes. He's, for a character that we don't know much about at this stage, he's actually been quite busy in the game room. He'd already established himself as one of the constant background people for the show. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say about this episode, so looking back at what the previous episodes were, this episode felt like the first real episode of SG-1. Broker Divide and Emancipation were always the, hey, we're a new sci-fi TV show, here are our colour-by-number episodes that we have to do. This was something you didn't expect, so this is where kind of the writers were flexing the muscles a bit. Yeah, Emancipation, I know it gets a lot of crap, but it, it really feels like we just dusted off an old copy of a, or a Star Trek script. Yeah. And The Broker Divide is also kind of a, an old, a Star Trek script. <laughs> Broker Divide is one of my more favourite episodes. First Commandment, wasn't a bad episode at all. It lays some of the groundwork for SG teams going rogue. Obviously, they go purely for some kind of delusional power grabber amongst the native population. We meet far more advanced civilizations that can be manipulated just as easily. So you think if Jonas had hung around a bit longer, he could have found himself a much nicer planet, like Mayborn did. (laughs) Mayborn. (laughs) Mayborn is a good guy. Yeah. Right then, folks, that was The First Commandment. Jeff, thank you very much for discussing it with me. Thank you for having me back on the show again. And I get to loop around and appear in the podcast before I appeared in the podcast. <laughs> cool time travel have done it as well. Not bad at all. <laughs> Let's see. The worst episode ever. Funnily enough, yes, Cold Lazarus is listed next on some sites. In other sites, it's flipped with The First Commandment. Actually, kind of thinking that in the back of my head as well that Cold Lazarus was one of the first episodes after the SGC, because, I mean, the pilot and then the first episode all just took place on Earth, really. Yeah. Centered on Earth. But I thought Cold Lazarus came before the First Commandment as well. Yeah. When you said you didn't like Cold Lazarus, I thought, well, that's perfect. Next week's is Cold Lazarus, so I'll do that with Brad, then you're the week after. But then I thought, hang on a minute. Well, and then also had my technology issues with not having a headset somehow. (laughs) 
Okay then folks, if you want to get in touch with the Stargate Archives, you can visit our website, which is stargatearchives.com. Email address is stargatearchives at gmail.com. On Twitter, we've retained the Gatecast. Google Plus and Facebook, again, Gatecast. As usual, nothing's changed much there. At this moment, the original Gatecast website is still active. It will be shutting down shortly. Uh, we've got a few ideas to maintain the RSS feeds. When they're sorted out, I will make the appropriate announcement. Right, uh, Jeff, again, thank you very much for joining me. Are you interested in coming back? I'm always interested in coming back. I have time to come back right now. Excellent. <laughs> right, have you got any contact information you'd like to give out? On Twitter, I am at IamWooz, I-A-M-W-O-O-Z, and that's probably the most open one I have. Everything else I have on social media is kind of locked down, but I can Fair be found. <laughs> Once again, thank you very much for listening to us. Thank you very much to Jeff. Until next time, I won't say next week because the joys of this podcast are not releasing every week anymore. Yeah. There's no schedule. <laughs> it's lovely. <laughs> Mike gets to have a life. Okay then, folks. Uh, until next time, I've been Mike. I'm Jeff. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> lovely. <laughs>